mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey guys, welcome back to Marriage of Martinis. I'm Adam. Here's Danielle. Hello. And this is all you're going to hear of me in this episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I apologize. I really wanted to be here for this interview, but I had to work and I couldn't come home in time. So I am really sorry. This was one I did not want to miss. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, I didn't want you to miss it either. Yeah, I know. I kind of enjoyed this topic and really wanted to learn myself because... Well, you listened to it when I you edited it. That's thing. why I was okay with it because I knew you were going to have to listen to it when you would edit it. And we're at Rosh Hashanah dinner right now, which <laughs> is what all the background noise is. So um, it is the Jewish New Year. We are celebrating right now. Yeah. Um, and we just scooted away because we wanted to just introduce you to the episode. Uh, I'm really proud of this episode. And I think, um, I think it's going to help a lot of people. And it's getting the conversation started. There's so much more to talk about. I definitely want to have Kim back on from Six Minute Sex Ed. But for now, um, I think she gives us a lot of tips about just even getting the conversation started, no matter how old your kids are. And she talks all about, you know, age appropriateness and um, all different ways to talk to your kids so that they're more comfortable, you're more comfortable. And she gives a lot of great insight. And uh, Kim Cavill is the po podcaster from six minute sex ed and her six minute sex ed podcast helps people talk openly about sex relationships and growing up. Uh, she's a sex education teacher. She has two levels of episodes. Level one episodes cover the basics and she says that they're family friendly that you know you can listen as a family which is a great way to get the conversation started can you hear the clapping going on in the background <laughs> that's not for me yeah <laughs> and level two episodes are more complex for parents um to listen to maybe on their own just um to get a sense of starting the conversation um and it's a great episode yeah i hope you guys enjoy this as much as i did mm -hmm. and you can find <laughs> her at, at least t and intimacy.com t-e-a and intimacy.com is her website six minutes sex ed is her podcast <laughs> and she has an instagram account also by the same name so definitely go give her a follow and here is my conversation with her so hi kim hello i'm so happy you're here i'm so thrilled that you invited me that's really kind thank you this is an episode that I've been wanting to do for a while, and I did a lot of research trying to figure out who I wanted to have on uh, because there, I think now it's getting to be more prevalent where mm -hmm. there's a lot more people coming forward saying, no, we, we need to start to move uh, the idea of you know positive sex education in a different direction. And I people like you are doing that. And I'm grateful because you're taking the lead. And for someone like me who says I want to be a sex positive parent, but 
I'm still a tad uncomfortable figuring out all of the conversations to have and what is the appropriate age. And I haven't really done that research, Mm -hmm. but I know it's really important. And I want my kids, one thing I want is for my kids to feel very comfortable coming to me about sex, talking to me about all of it. And in order to do that, I need to make them feel obviously like um, somebody, you know, I'm a safe space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So your podcast is Six Minute Sex Ed. Yes. And I love the basis of the podcast, but I'm going to let you tell about it and why you started it. Sure. Um, so my podcast is Six Minutes Sex Ed because most episodes are around about six minutes. I try to keep them as close to six minutes. Sometimes they kind of bleed into eight minutes, but six minutes in general. And they're single subject episodes that I release in two different levels generally. So level one would be kind of the basics, which are appropriate for anyone of any age. And so we talk about things like privacy, um, one's called, you know, I'm the boss of my body, talking about bodily autonomy and boundaries. Um, And then I do episodes in level two, which is more complex. And those are generally, I would, if I had to say an age, um, I would say, right about the start of puberty or right before puberty. So that could be like nine, 10 and up. Um, in the episodes, you'll hear me say like tweens, teens and up. So um, that, that doesn't mean to say that age is really always the best way to kind of delineate between various concepts that fall under the umbrella of sex ed because, you know, um, some families have been so open from the beginning. Um, the age, you know, you don't have to wait until a kid is 10 or so to talk about certain subjects, but I figured to make it uh, as accessible as possible to as many kinds of families and classrooms as possible, that that was the best way to organize it. So I released bi-weekly episodes and one's level two, which is good for everyone. And then level two um, episodes, which are more complex. And the reason why I started the podcast is that most of my work here in the United States uh, is classroom-based work. And at the time when I launched, I was uh, primarily in middle school and high school classrooms. And in my private time, you know, I spend my day job talking to young people. And then in my off hours where, you know, I'm talking to a lot of adults, a lot of parents who have a lot of questions like, I want to be able to have these conversations. There's all this kind of media telling me that I am supposed to be having these conversations, but I really don't know what any of those look like because I certainly never had those for my parents. Yeah. So at night I was talking to parents and fielding all these questions about um, wanting to have these kind of conversations, but not really having any resources, you know? Um, So you have so many parents and caring adults have all these really good intentions and they read, you know, articles in the Huffington Post that say, yeah, you should be having these conversations with your kids from the moment they're born, really. And, and then we don't really have any examples um, to pull from what those actually look like, what those conversations sound like. And so I made the thing that I wish I had to give to both parents and young people during my day-to-day work. And, you know, there wasn't a resource. And so I saw a gap. And that's why I started the podcast was I wanted to make the thing that I really wanted to be able to give to people who are asking me all these questions, both young people themselves and parents. And so 
I felt like so many of the resources um, that we have out there, even in the sex positive realm, you know, like these websites are great. Scarletine is great, but it's really for young people. Like that's what its audience is. Mm -hmm. And then you have, um, you know, books about sex positive parenting, and those are really for adults. But the thing is, is that these conversations are really supposed to be collaborative and they're supposed to occur over a lifespan, you know, over the, over the course of an adolescence, ideally. So uh, those, that siloing of resources, I didn't really feel like was working. Um, and you know, I, I wanted something more collaborative. So that's why I made the podcast the way that it's formatted, which is really short so that, um, so that no one gets bored, and, you know, that even young children can listen without um, feeling the need to be restless or, you know, wanting to get out of the conversation. So that's why it's about six minutes. That's why it's single subject and it's really sex positive and that it's designed for adults and young people to listen to together and then to be able to talk about it. So it's really a conversation starter. It's not designed to be like, okay, well, you know, today we're going to learn about AIDS and then we're going to turn it off and then we don't have to talk about anything. So it's, um, yeah, it's a way for for classrooms, which a lot of health classrooms have ended up using it, and it's a way for families to start conversations that um, you know everybody really seems to want to be having, but they are not really sure how to do. Mm-hmm. And w- explain to us, we we all hear sex positive parents. Now that's a big term; it's mm-hmm. thrown around a lot. You go on Instagram, there are so many. Um, you know, Instagram accounts about sex positive parenting. What exactly does it mean? If you, if you say, I want to be a sex positive parent, what does that mean? So you're not going to get the same definition from, from every single person you ask. I can tell you what it means for me and my favorite kind of experts in this area that I work right alongside. Um, And what it means for me is that, uh, we have to realize that um, for as long as we've been talking to young people about sex, which frankly hasn't been very long formally in this country, and we have to remember that most young people in the United States still don't get any sex education at all, whether it's accurate or not, um, that most of the messages adults, that we as adults give them about sex and relationships are focused really on risk. All of the things that we want young people to understandably avoid all the things that we don't want them to do. And most of our messages are really built around that, how to avoid and reduce risk. And it's not to say that those messages aren't important, they aren't. But for me, sex positivity really means saying, well, if we're going to be positive about sex, then we also have to deliberately make room for messages that aren't just built around risk, you know, to the messages that are built around sex is a positive thing. What does that mean for me? And for me, I mean, especially being so focused on classroom work, like um, that's just really going through curriculum and material and your messages and making sure that, you know, if you're going to spend 50% of the time focusing on a you know, risk avoidance of some kind or risk reduction. So if you're going to spend 50% of your time talking about like STIs, STI testing, you know, avoiding unintended pregnancy, et cetera, avoiding emotional distress, um, then you need to spend the other 50% of the time at minimum talking about um, your ideal partner. You know, what kind of sex life do you imagine having your for yourself as you get older? Uh, what are your goals in terms of romantic relationships? Um, you know, how do you see yourself 
as an as a, as a young adult like how does how does sex play a role in that or not play a role and so um, talking about set consent to not just as like a hoop that you have to jump through in order to have you know sex but as a tool that you actually use to get uh, to try and create um, the kind of sex that everybody says they want to have, right? Mutually pleasurable uh, sexual experiences. So to me, it's really about framing and it's about deliberately carving out space for positive messages around sex. And then I think largely speaking, one thing that anybody that calling themselves a sex positive person, educator, parent, or otherwise practitioner would be a whole scale rejection of shame. Because um, mm -hmm. so much of our, uh, sex education in this country and even conversations about sex between you know adults is really um shame based and right. so it's especially when your, your whole basis of teaching is around the risks and right. what's going to happen to you if you start having sex or you start being sexually active are there schools and places that are starting to take that path or is this something because a lot of times you'll hear people say i mean still pretty often I, no, I don't think school is the place for kids to be learning about pleasure, and mm -hmm. that's just not the appropriate outlet to do it. And I, I wonder if we're we're going to be able to get over that hump of no, maybe you know somebody has to do it, and they're in school most of the day, and we need the resources somewhere. And a lot of parents don't feel equipped, and maybe putting professionals yeah. in the classroom will. Is it possible to get to that place? I think, of course, I think it, it's possible. I also think that we should temper that with something that, you know, like Dan Savage, who's been working in this area for a yeah. long time says, which yeah. is like, I mean, if we're going to be really frank, like uh, people like him referring to himself, like people like me are never going to be out of a job, you know, in this country. Mm -hmm. So um, we- You're talking about Dan Savage from the Love- love. Yeah, the Savage Love cast. Savage yeah. Love cast, yeah. Yeah. He's so there is a- kinds of terms and monogamish and all of this. Yeah. Yes. And so um, I, cause I saw him speak at the Chicago Humanities Festival two years ago and really he got the same question and I felt like um, his response was really good. I largely agreed with it. And, and it's just, we have to remember fr from the time that European settlers came over here to colonize this land and, um, you know, frankly steal it from indigenous peoples. Uh, one of the reasons why the majority of those settlers uh, left England in the first place was that uh, their expression of their religious values, um, the, the larger English political society and social society felt to be too fundamentalist and, and repressive. And so the Puritans at that time didn't feel like in England they could, ex they could live the kind of life that they really wanted to live. Um, and so they took their values and left. And from the time that they got over here, they set about trying to do what they had wanted to do in England, but were prevented from doing, which was imposing those values on any peoples that they could find, largely indigenous peoples that they came across. And so a lot of those values we can see echoing down still today. I mean, um, you know, the language around modesty and a lot of shame and um, kind of the things that 
um, we know and recognize from what I would say like uh, abstinence only programs. And it's not to say that it's exactly the same and it's not to disparage anybody's right to uh, express their religious values. Where I have a problem, of course, is when those values transcend an individual's experience and start to impact other people's access to proper education and medically accurate information that they really have a fundamental human right to access. So, you know, and that's, and, and Dan Savage was really speaking to that kind of um, streak that's been in the United States really from our founding as, as a country. And so that's why he's saying like, he doesn't really believe he'll be out, ever out of a job. And I don't think that this, um, I'm under no illusions that, um, you know, 15 years from now, this battle will be somehow won and that uh, every young person in the States will have uh, comprehensive K through 12 uh, shame-free sex education that's medically accurate. Although that's not going to stop me from working toward that goal until, you know, my last dying breath. So, mm -hmm. Well, thank you for doing that. We are appreciative. So I want to. I got so many questions from parents because we I think so many of us are so well intended. We want to be the place where our kids can come and talk, and it all sounds really like a nice little package. Oh, we're going to talk. You know, I, I, you can tell me anything. And first of all, you have so much resistance from our kids because what kid really wants to go to their parent and have them be the source of? Oh yeah, so Ma, can you teach me about oral sex? Or yeah, <laughs> I saw this on a movie. Like, no, uh -huh. kids aren't doing that. I mean, let's just be honest. Maybe. Some families they are, but I, I think for the most of us, it's not happening. And in, mm -hmm. in fact, it's the opposite. The second you bring it up to your kids, they run the other way or scream or slam the door on you. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's I think that's first of all just natural that you know that's that's not where you want the first place to be where you get your information. But obviously, the other places that kids are getting information. Um, are not where they should be. So we need to do something. Mm -hmm. And my first question, I guess, is when do we start talking about it and age appropriateness? If you could give us, I mean, just maybe even an overview, mm -hmm. uh, just a general overview for any of us who have young kids through teens. What? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that um, in an ideal world, you really are having, um, you're starting this from the very beginning. And, and it's really not just, that doesn't mean that you're going to sit down, you're, you sit your three-year-old down and be like, today, I'm going to talk to you about oral sex. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that these kind of conversations happen on a continuum. And it's more important to, um, you know, I think a, a lot of us, and I have a tendency to do this myself, have kind of like timelines and tick boxes. I really love schedules and I really love lists. So I, I, and I love the feeling of ticking a box and be like, look what I checked off my list. I really did that. And I did it on time. That's not the way this works necessarily. What's more important than hitting deadlines about various subjects at various ages. What's more important is making sure that, um, to create an environment where your young person and your child feels comfortable asking questions. That's what's most important. So facilitating an environment that's free of shame, that, uh, that is very comfortable, that welcomes curiosity, and that is emotionally honest is way more important than talking about whatever subject at the right time. Because 
ideally, children are going to be leading you through when they're ready rather than use you kind of pulling them through this process. And so that means um, if you happen to have a child who um, doesn't necessarily ask the kind of questions that you're thinking that they should be asking as they, as they grow, um, rather than you can, I mean, you can always try and sit down and be like, look, you know, I know you're not bringing this up, but I also feel like as your parent or as your guardian, like, this is part of my job to make sure you have certain kinds of information. And so today, you know, like you're seven, um, we've never talked about this, but I would just want to make sure that you understand, um, where, babies come from, how they're made, you know, just basic. So we're going to go over that today. You can do that. Other times uh, you can kind of engineer a teachable moment. So um, that means when you're in at the park or in public or you're walking around, you're in Target and someone's very visibly pregnant or someone has a newborn baby, you can say like, oh, look, a baby. And then you can kind of use that to turn and say like, hey, do you know how babies are made? And then see what the response is. And is the right response ever, depending on how young they are, is the right response ever? I'll tell you when you're older. Sure. It depends. And so I, absolutely. So I'll give you a perfect example of me saying this, a version of this anyway, to one of my own children. So uh, when my eldest child was five, um, I was tucking him into bed one night, reading him a book when he kind of interrupted me and he said, Hey mom, how does the sperm get to the egg and then make this kind of like little gesture, you know, like a wiggling. And I said, you know, you know, my initial reaction was like, this is earlier than I thought I'd be answering this question. So even, you know, I mean, I do this for a living and still on the inside, I was like, Oh, I'm here already. <laughs> you know, like, okay. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I sat and I just kind of like took a deep breath and, um, and then I, I use my own anti-anxiety technique, which I love to tell other parents and caring adults, is that when you're getting a question earlier or a different kind of a question that you really weren't expecting, and if you happen to have just that natural kind of like, oh, kind of like shock and anxiety about like, okay, I want to do this right, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the best ways to diffuse that initial reaction is to remember that your child feeling comfortable saying that to you in the first place shows that they feel really safe and comfortable with you and they trust you. And so that already shows you that you're doing really well. And it's a great compliment that they even asked you. And so it's like, this is great. He feels great asking me. And so I double checked, which is always a good next step to do is just to voice their question back to them to make absolutely certain you understand what it is they actually want to know. We have to remember when we're working with young children that they don't have as big of a vocabulary to access to explain complicated concepts. So you just want to make doubly sure that you understand the question in the first place. So I said, so um, you, you know from us talking before how pregnancies start, right? A sperm meet an egg and the sperm meets the egg and then they combine and then that starts a pregnancy so you remember that from us talking before and he said yeah and he said now what you're asking me though is how the sperm actually gets to the egg is that what you want to know and he said yeah I want to know how like how the sperm gets to the egg and so I went through a very very basic overview of how that happens you know so we talked just about the broad 
basics. It took less than a minute. And then at the end of that, he followed up with, he's like, well, mom, so how does the, how does the penis actually go into the vagina? And I said at that point, I said, you know what? They fit really well and it doesn't hurt. It's not painful. In fact, people, most of the sex people have isn't for babies. It's to feel pleasure because sex is supposed to feel good. But you don't actually have to worry about how those two things can fit together right now. Mm-hmm. We can talk more about that when you're a bit older. Mm-hmm. You just need to know right now that it doesn't hurt. It's not a thing that um, is painful. It's a thing that people do. So that right just, away they're not feeling this, this scared by it because it does yeah. it can sound like a scary process. Yeah. And is it going to hurt? And you yeah. hear about, you know, having a baby that it hurts and labor. And so exactly. that's a really good point that that's the first thing you want to do is to, that if there might be a fear underlying there, if they're asking that to just get rid of that fear. Yeah. And those are the two fears that young kids have when they're asking questions and they first hear this information. The first one is, does it hurt? Because it sounds like it hurts. It sounds like it hurts to a young child. And, um, and then you know, the message that I always give at that point is that most people have sex. Most of the sex people have is because sex feels good. Sex is supposed to feel good. If sex doesn't feel good, sex should stop. So -hmm. that's what I always say from the beginning. And then the next message there that young children worry about is like, oh my God, do I have to do that? Mm -hmm. And so then the next thing to always follow up with is to say, and remember, because a lot of times you'll hear kids, like once they understand their girl, like, oh, gross, you know, and to say like, yeah, I, I totally understand why it makes you feel like it seems gross. Like, I don't think it's gross. And just because you think it's gross now, it doesn't mean you, you can't change your mind later. But what's important to know is that no one ever has to do anything with their body that they don't want to do. And if sex is never something that you want to do, you don't have to do it. Sex is always a choice. Mm-hmm. And then that just kind of reduces that fear. And then you put those two major fears aside. And then usually by that point, the conversation's done, mm-hmm. you know, because what's important is not to hit all of the ticking points. The only, it's not your only chance, right? The whole point is that it's not just one conversation. You get a chance over and over again, as long as your child feels safe talking to you to revisit topics. And even if you feel like you screwed up or you said something wrong, I mean, it's still modeling a really positive skill in terms of sex and relationships to approach your kid again and be like, look, you know, uh, you know, remember when we talked before about this, um, I feel like I made a mistake and I just want to correct something that I said. And, um, you know, I just, I just want to give you better information than I did the first time. And, um, I want you to know that, you know, I really liked talking to you and you can always come to me and I'll always admit that if I feel like I said something wrong or made a mistake, you know? And yeah. so you're, cause I mean, imagine how, how often do we have to do that in a relationship, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of this stuff that some of the questions that they ask when they want the technical details and everything, we haven't thought about ourselves in a really long time. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it, we might have to go back and, you know, Google. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, it, it, you don't know, but, and I, I love all of that. And I, I, I do hope that my kids will be able to, you know, can come and talk to me. And I, I think that they know that they, they can, uh, but there are a lot of parents. It's not comfortable. Most of our parents didn't talk to us about it um, at all. And a lot of us didn't even know what we were doing or what it was. And yeah. 
you know, the first time we had sex, we had no idea what was going on. It kind of, you know, mm-hmm. nobody had taught us. We saw it in the movies or we read about it in books. For the parents who aren't as comfortable but really, really want to um, keep the openness and the message, I do a few things around my house that I uh, we've just spoken about in a few episodes um, because it, it can get uncomfortable. And even when like the topic doesn't present itself, we have some posters around the house, mm-hmm. um, you know, just that have some more general things about bodies and consent and bodies being beautiful and respect, that kind of thing. Um, we have a coffee table. I'm constantly like trying to, um, you know, change up books um, and just by leaving them on the coffee table, kind of hope that they'll open them and look at them. And they generally, they usually do. Um, We have a chalkboard that sometimes, you know, I'll try to put a quote or, but those are obviously little things and I know I can be doing more for sure. I mean, I have a ways to go to really, I think, be fully um, engaged in that situation. But are there other things that we can be doing that are a little less what some of us see as, um, you know, shock value, like a, l- a little less daunting, maybe some subtle, you know, more uh, more subtle moves that we can make. Sure. I mean, there's, there's so many great books out now for all different ages uh, that um, books can really make this easier for people who have a lot of unlearning to do. Like, and, and I did too. Like I was... Um, raised in a family where this wasn't discussed at all, at all. And I got a lot of negative messages about sex. You know, I was um, raised in a very Christian household. You know, I, I'm certainly not Christian in my adult life. I'm an, I'm an atheist who goes to a Unitarian Universalist church every Sunday with my children. And so, you know, me getting to the place where I am now has been a lot of work in a long journey. Plus, you know, I survived it quite a lot of sexual violence, much of which happened in my childhood. So it's been a long journey to get here. And that journey I know is not just myself alone. Like a lot of us have similar journeys. And that doesn't mean that we don't have all of the tools to get where we want to go or to be someone who's open and welcoming with our children. In a lot of ways, I feel like some of the experience that I had growing up, though I wouldn't wish it on anybody and it was too high a price to pay, you know, you would never ask a person to pay that kind of price for experience. Um, I still think like it gave me some tools that I, I, I find really effective in my own parenting journey and in my classroom work, working with young people. And so it's not, it doesn't have to be a limitation. And even when you're modeling how to that struggle, even when your children see you struggle, um, that in and of itself is a good example and a learning opportunity. Like we don't have to be perfect all the time. I think what matters is that we can admit when we're feeling really vulnerable to admit when we don't know. And so for example, like you were coming up with, um, you had said like, sometimes our kids might ask us, we haven't we haven't thought about this stuff in a long time, or maybe we never really learned. We don't actually know the answer. We have to go Google. Um, There's no reason to have to Google that by ourselves and then come back as kind of an expert who's done research. I would suggest that that in and of itself is a perfect teachable moment to be like, I don't know the answer to that question. I haven't thought about this in a long time, or you know what? No one ever gave me this information. Let's go figure out how to answer this question together. 
And then you can take your child to Google with you and show how to find reliable information. So when you search for whatever answer, whatever question you're trying to answer, and let's say you get a, a couple of results from um, organizations that you know have some kind of a political agenda or who don't provide reliable information, you can narrate this process out loud. The process that your brain already goes through, you can narrate it for your child. Because remember, they don't have these scripts that we've developed as adults. You can say like, well, you know, I know that that link is right toward the top, but that doesn't mean that it's truthful. If I look at this organization that it's coming from, I can see that this actually isn't truthful information, that it's information that wants to make me feel a certain way. And that's not the kind of information we're looking for right now. So we're going to scroll past that and look for a source of information that we can trust, right? And so you're just narrating this process out. And these are the tools that your young person's really going to need when they're older when they're teenagers and they don't want to talk to you about oral sex, right? right. you know, because right. there are absolutely some topics that young people, when they get um, into adolescence and it's very, very healthy, this is a developmentally appropriate thing to have clear boundaries about things that they do not want to talk to their parents about, which is why sex positive parenting as an umbrella doesn't mean um, like making ourselves, myself, even in my own family, as the end all be all of all information sexual. So like even from the conversations I have with my, my own kids now, it's like, you know, I'll answer a question then I'll say, but look, if, if you ever wanna talk to somebody about this and you don't wanna talk to me, let's go through some of the other grownups in your life that you trust, that you can speak to, if you need a little bit of distance, you know, so it's not just me, you've got a whole community of caring adults around you that you can turn to for various things. That's something that you can encourage early. And that's something that they're net that they'll rely on when they're older. And they have questions that they can't really bring to their parents, which is, again, very developmentally appropriate for that age. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I also know in a lot of places, I don't know if it's mostly more progressive um, areas, but I know that now a lot of doctors are specializing in just teens and that it's a, it's a different kind of, rather than just being, you know, you go to the doctor and you get a checkup, they'll also do a question answer kind of thing. And that could be a resource too, where if you do some research um, on, and even ask, you know, a local Facebook group or something, if they have a great doctor where you can take, um, you know, your, your child or, you know, your mm -hmm. young adult, that that's another really good thing to look into. And oh, for I, sure. I know people who have started doing that rather than when, when your kid is in that in between, not really pediatrician, mm -hmm. maybe not fully adult, um, now there's really an in-between, right? Yeah, sure. And then, I, I mean, I always tell um, parents that it's really important once a child starts puberty, the first visible sign, then it's really important to make sure that when they go to the regular doctor's appointments, um, that you step out of the room for a while. Like, you know, once puberty starts to happen, the child should have, the young person does need some alone time with the doctor to be able to ask questions or bring up subjects that the person 
doesn't want to talk to the doctor about in front of you, or maybe has questions that they want to talk to the doctor about and not you. So it's really important to provide some alone time with a physician once puberty starts. That like that's that's important. That doesn't mean that um, the parent doesn't have any input into the process, but it's respecting the fact that um, child is growing older. That uh, it's respecting the need for some privacy around their own body and functioning, and uh, it encourages. Uh, their own personal safety too. And it gives them an opportunity to practice, you know, advocating for themselves, which we have to remember, like childhood is such an intense part of life, but it's also the shortest part of any person's life. Mm -hmm. So we're not just protecting our children until they leave home. We're, we're also having to give them the skills that they need to be able to protect themselves once they leave home. And that means being able to speak to a doctor on their own behalf. And you can start that when, when the child's in puberty. So um, I want to make sure I answer your questions fully. So for parents who want kind of a more non-direct way of encouraging a sex-positive home, there's loads of books out there. There's picture books. Um, there's a board book about consent for children who are very, very young. We'll put and, some up on our website too. Um, yeah. So the best, the best book list, Sex Positive Families, Melissa from Sex Positive Families, who has a website. I'll send you a link after this conversation. Yeah, I follow the, her too. Yes. She has the best reading reading list on the internet. So I was going to make one for my own podcast and I realized like I don't need to reinvent the wheel because Melissa is amazing and Melissa has already compiled all this information. So I just send everybody to Melissa's book. I mean, it's amazing. So Sex Positive Families reading list is the best on the internet and it has books from zero to three, you know, books from three to five, uh, up age, up uh, in each age bracket up until 18 and, and adults. So there's something there for everyone. And you can always have some books strategically placed around the house. You can even say like, I brought this home from the store, from the library today. Um, even, you know, if you're interested or not, that's fine. But I just wanted to let you know that it's here and then put it in a place and, and you know, let it be accessible is a good way to be able to do that. And then encouraging um, your child to have good, positive, trustworthy relationships with um, good, positive, trustworthy adults in their life so that they don't just have you as a resource if you're not comfortable with something, that they have lots of people they could talk to. And also, I, one thing I was going to add, because when thinking about your podcast, times when um, we're in the car or anything, and we sort of have control over yeah. what's happening, what's being played, and you know, not yeah. always. I know kids wear headphones and that kind of thing, but I, you know, some, I say sometimes when I'm making dinner, um, I, I put on... You know, maybe not a podcast, but even like music I want them to listen to or something yeah. I want them to hear because I'm sort of like in control at that moment. And and you could be a little strategic about all of that and what's playing um, in the house or, you know, just things that don't seem so forced mm -hmm. and don't seem and aren't quite as uncomfortable and maybe just are more background noise, but with a message. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. And one thing I wanted to add also, which you made me think about this also, is when you were talking about giving your your young adult time with the doctor to talk without you, it also might be smart to, at a certain point, think about, is this the doctor they're going to want to talk to? Because mm -hmm. I think about my pediatrician and I'm sort of like, oh, wait a minute. I don't, I mean, they were great when they were toddlers, but I don't know that that's the same person that's good for them now. And I never even thought of that. Yeah. So 
um, I think that's a good thing to kind of reassess and say, okay, now that they're going to the next stage of life, maybe we need to figure out who they'll be more comfortable with. Yeah, that's a great point. And can I tell you a couple of easy ways to try and suss this out? Please. What kind of doctor? So the first, um, a really good opportunity to try and figure out what kind of attitudes or what kind of access to information your pediatrician will provide. The first stage, the first real opportunity is the HPV vaccine. So the HPV vaccine up until last year, up until 2018, in the United States was available for anyone between the ages of nine and 26. Now, most pediatricians like to give the first dose around 11 or 12, though it is approved for um, the first dose to be given as young as nine, but usually only in situations where the child would be assessed at being of high risk. So generally speaking, the first dose is around 11 or 12. Below the age of 15, it's two shots. Above the age of 15, it's a succession of three. You have to get all of the shots to be vaccinated. And that's really important for parents and adults to understand because we do have a real issue in this country, first of all, with the uptake of the vaccine. It's not nearly as um, prevalent in our community as it should be. And then number two, it's very, very common for um, young people to get the first shot and then not the rest in the series. But you have to get all the shots in the series to be guaranteed the efficacy rate. And the, ex the vaccine is highly effective. It's over 90% effective. And what it does is that um, it's a cancer prevention vaccine is really what it is. And so it prevents high risk strains of the HPV virus that are correlated with um, cervical cancer, head, neck, throat, and anal cancers. And so it's a highly effective vaccine. It's super important for everyone to get. Um, and the FDA, thank goodness, just revised their age recommendations. Now it's available in the United States for anyone between the ages of nine and 45. So anyone, even an adult who has had HPV in the past, should still get the vaccine because it covers not just one strain of HPV, it covers 16 strains and many of those strains are high risk. So it's really a great vaccine for everybody to get in terms of cancer prevention. Um, the provision in Australia is an example because of their national healthcare system and their accessibility and the funding that they put behind it. Australia as a country expects to eradicate cervical cancer within the next 15 years because that's how effective the vaccine really is. And so when you ask your pediatrician about the HPV vaccine, if they're forthright about all the information, if they're very comfortable discussing it with you, this is a really good sign as to how they'll be in conversations later. Um, if, the, if the pediatrician actually brings up the HPV vaccine, which they should, that's another good sign. And then your second opportunity to really figure out what kind of services each, um, the pediatricians are gonna be able to provide is to just be able to ask them point blank, like, um, so uh, how do you talk to young people about birth control? And if there's an initial flash of shock and then there's a lot of flailing around, you know, like, well, I, uh, I don't know, like, what do you mean? And then that's, that's not a great sign. You know, that's not a great sign at all. If the pediatrician's comfortable answering that question, says things like, well, um, we provide the full range of options here. Uh, we make sure that um, there's plenty of time in the appointments to discuss all the options. Uh, you know, if they talk about like, well, we'll talk about that as long as the parents are in the room, but I won't, you know. And so you can see, depending on what the response is to that general question is, 
whether their approach is going to match uh, the kind of approach that you want for your young person about whether you need to find a new doctor or not, if that makes sense. Definitely. Because I can tell you something that this is something that really pissed. Can I say pisses me off? Like, can oh I my say, God, you can say. Okay, this is something. That, okay, good. <laughs> this is something that really pisses me off. Um, I get questions very routinely from parents who talk to me and say, like, okay, like my teenage daughter um, wants an IUD for an example, or they want Nexplanon, which is the um, implant that is placed under the skin of the arm. These are both LARCs, long acting reversible contraceptive devices, two examples of the most effective kinds of contraception on the market, right? So long acting reversible contraceptive methods. And so you have, um, this is how it always happens to be honest with you. You have teenagers that have decided they wanna access one of these methods that isn't the pill or the patch of the ring, other delivery mechanisms of the same drugs in the combination pill. And so they'll talk with their parents to their doctor and their doctor will be like, no, you can't, you can't have that. Like, I'll give you the pill or I'll give you the patch. No, but you can't have, you can't have the IUD or no, you can't, you can't have the implant and, and not really give a reason or they'll give a bullshit reason. Like you're just too young, which is nonsense. Um, and so then the parents are like, well, they said, no, is, can they not safely, can my daughter not safely use this? They'll ask me and be like, well, is the doctor right? And I'm like, well, the doctor is flat out wrong. They're flat out wrong. It's not true at all. They're still obviously not properly educated about contraceptive methods or, you know, yada, yada, IUD insertion processes, et cetera. And so they're acting as a barrier to somebody's reproductive health care. And so in that case, like I will provide tools to take back to that same doctor and engage in some institutional advocacy or um, a lot of cases, the parents have to find a new place to go to because the doctor is just not providing the full range of services that people are entitled to access. And so it can be a real concern. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm, yeah, I think that there's, we don't think about, you know, you choose a doctor for your kid when, you know, before you have them. And then a lot of us just stick with it because the files are there and it, you know, we feel more comfortable. We know how to get there. We know the people at the front desk. We, and after a certain point, it's sort of like, okay, well, that's no longer the priority. We need to figure, reassess and figure it out again. And that's something that actually I, I think I need to do now that we've spoken about it. And when we're, when we're talking about, um, uh, you were just talking about, you know, uh, birth control and everything. One question that uh, a lot of our listeners had when I asked was, should there, is there appropriate time that we're telling them to wait to be sexually active? You know, my, I remember my mom saying to me, and this is, you know, a long time ago, I remember my mom saying to me, just wait till you're in college, which obviously is sort of like a, uh, all right, you know, why then? <laughs> I was sort of like, okay. <laughs> and I did, you know, and it actually mm. gave me sort of an out to feel like when my friends were having sex in high school, mm. I was sort of like, nope, gotta wait till college. And obviously, <laughs> whether or not that's obviously not the right way to do it, but it's how she did it. It worked for me in a sense. Um, but that is not hope, maybe the method I want to take with my. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But it's also sort of like we we want them uh, – listen, we don't want them doing it before they're ready is, right, right. Is, is really what it is. And before they have the tools, and sometimes it takes a while to get these tools and to really feel ready. 
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Sure, absolutely. So I would say that this is more about framing than it is about message. Because there's, there's, there's a proper way to frame this conversation where it invites young people in as opposed to dictating terms. And I think we all know having been assuming that it's primarily adults listening to this podcast, like we've been teenagers ourselves. And I was a fairly well-behaved young person. I mean, I don't know. I'll ask my mom. We'll see. I'll get a percentage from my mother and see what she would. <laughs> I was grounded a lot of the time, but if you ask me, it was for stupid crap that didn't matter. So I was a generally well-behaved young person. Um, and I still remember what I felt like as a teenager with all the adults around me in virtually every context dictating terms. And teenagers are, um, it's part of their job to reject those terms. It's not just, you know, and I know it's really hard to not take that stuff personally and everything else, but like that's their job is limit testing, um, ethics questioning. It's their job to reject dictated terms. So if that's how we're going to approach this conversation, then you're setting yourself and your young person up for failure to comply. Like that's just how they're built. And so that's not to say that they're guaranteed to screw up. It's just um, they're guaranteed not to engage when it's um, an imposition as opposed to an invitation. And so the framing of this conversation is most successful when it's framed as an invitation to a critical thinking about risks. And so that's what's most important is a risk assessment. And you invite the young person in to help think through what the various risks are. And so, you know, there's lots of different things to take into account when a young person's deciding whether or not they're ready. Um, there's the emotional ramifications of sex, uh, of engaging in sexual activity. There's the emotional ramifications for their partner that at the end of the day, they don't actually have control over, which impacts partner choice. You know, there's, um, you know, wanting to avoid unintended pregnancy. There's wanting to avoid any sexually transmitted infections. Um, of course, there's wanting to uh, avoid breaking any laws. And we have to remember that each state has its own age of consent law and laws that are around who can consent legally to sex with whom and under what circumstances, which um, I don't ever use the law as like a scare tactic because I mean, first of all, it doesn't work. And second of all, like that's not actually what the law is written for. Um, but it does mean that I think any type of sex that is illegal, so um, if the people don't meet the age of consent in that state, then that automatically, automatically pushes the risk level up. And so, you know, you have to take that into account when you're making good, sound decisions. And um, with young people thinking critically about good decisions would be like decisions that aren't just going to feel good for a week or a month, but decisions that you're going to feel good about. For five minutes. Right. For, <laughs> for six months, right? Like right. for a couple of years after. And that's how you start to delineate. So um, 
I would say for that framing, it's more about open-ended questions that invite the family and the young person to think about all of the factors that have to be taken into account when a person's making this kind of decision about whether or not they're ready. And if it's an invitation where everyone feels free to share their views without shaming, that doesn't mean without disagreement, but without shaming for holding those views, then it's much more likely that the young person's gonna take that into account when they make their own decisions. And it's much more likely that the young person's going to comply with your family values, which is the second part of that framing that's really important. So it's framing as an invitation. And then secondly, it's contextualized with, here are our family's values. Like these are the values in our family. And it's perfectly acceptable, you know, for, um, I know this is the way it was in my family to say like, I mean, my family was very, very Christian. So I was expected to wait until I was married before I engaged in any of this kind of activity. I don't agree with the way it was presented to me at all, but that isn't to say that it can't be presented in a way that isn't shame-based. You can say like, you know, our family, um, I've raised, you know, we've, we've decided as a family that we're being raised within this set of biblical values. This is how I feel like those biblical values are, um, acted out in real in our day-to-day -day lives. This is what my expectations of you would be based on those biblical values. Uh, how do you feel about that? You know, another open-ended question. Like, how do you feel? Do you share the, that same point of view? Like, are we on the same page about these things? The young person has the opportunity to say like, yes or no, or here's what I'm really worried about. And then to kind of negotiate behavior expectations from there, where it feels like a collaborative effort rather than one of like, okay, look, I've drawn up this contract about when you're going to be able to have sex right. and I just need you to sign it or you're grounded. Like, <laughs> right. And, and so when you're sitting down and doing that, the whole risk ass assessment, what, how can we do it in a way, like you're saying about shame, how, what kind of things can we say if, if there are any phrases or anything that we can throw in there that shows that, listen, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not saying sex is bad. It's, it's good. It's what, how can we throw that in there so that we can have those discussions about the risk without also creating the shame? Yeah. So um, the first one I would say is that you start from a positive place rather than the place of, of fear, like what we're, what we're afraid of happening. So rather than saying like, okay, um, you know, let's, let's talk about um, all of the reasons why it might be bad for you to have sex at, at you know, 14, 15, whatever the age is. Like, let's, um, what about pregnancy? What, what about STIs, et cetera? So rather than starting from that place of the outcomes that you're trying to avoid, you want to start with, um, okay, so let's say we avoid these outcomes. What, what is the opposite of that then? What does sex eventually looks, look like, even if your version of success is realized? So let's say me as a parent, and um, I really don't want my young person, my children to have sex until they're... I don't know, at least 16. Let's just say that this is my position. And so um, I have to think then, what eventually do I want sex to look like for them in general? Once that plan is realized, I have to be able to answer the question. And then that informs where I start the conversation, which is an open-ended question about like, I, I'd approach it like this. So like, what kind of, what kind of partner do you, do you want for yourself? Like what's, who's your ideal partner? Like, tell me about 
your, your dream partner and what that person looks like and how that person acts, how that person treats you, how you treat them, describe that for me. So you start with a positive vision of what a person wants for themselves. And then once you're, you're really listening and taking that into account, most of the time that vision isn't going to include someone who's, for example, refusing to use a condom or refusing to use or discuss contraceptive measures or um, someone that isn't afraid, someone that's really afraid or refuses to ever talk about STIs or STI testing. Like these are things that don't show up on most people's version of an ideal partner. So once you start from that positive place, then you can start to think about, okay, um, you invite your young person to think about whether or not that, that ideal partner or that ideal relationship is something that they currently have the tools to realize right at this stage. And so if the answer is, um, you know, if the young person's 14, the answer is usually going to be like, well, no, I don't feel like I have all of the tools to have this right now. This is something I want for myself in the future. And that automatically says implicitly that I'm not ready for this then just yet. Like I'm not here yet. This is where I'm trying to go, but I'm not here yet. And so in the meantime, what kinds of things do I need to learn and work on? What kind of information do I want? Um, you know, what kinds of things am I going to look for in friendships that might eventually grow into something like this? And so it invites the person to realize just from a positive place, like this is where I want to be, but I realize that I'm not here right now. So I don't need to do this right now because this isn't, act, this isn't actually where I want to end up, if that makes sense. And if our kids seem like they might be edging towards that, if they're in a more serious relationship, maybe that we're worried it's a little too young, or it just seems like it's progressing into that. Is that something we should be proactive about, that we should be starting that conversation with them before they come to us? Sure. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing precluding. Even when a young person's really resistant, which at 14, generally, there, there generally is some resistance. And again, that's developmentally appropriate, which is why I do go back to um, kind of what you were saying before. The car is a really wonderful place to have these kind of conversations. Even with the earbuds in, you would be surprised how many times that the earbuds are in, the person's looking out the window, you think they can't hear you at all, the music's off, and they actually are listening. They just want, they don't want you to know that they're listening. And so you just persist anyway, that's okay. And the car is a really good place to have this because um, you're not looking at each other. There's no eye contact. And that dramatically reduces the anxiety, especially for teenage age people, for young people. And parents too, like there doesn't, it's, it's automatically less pressure. The other nice thing psychologically about a car ride is that you know that it is eventually going to end. It doesn't seem interminable. Eventually the car is going to stop and the car ride is over and it's a natural separation or a bookend to the conversation. So, you know, you can be kind of strategic. Like if you know what you're going to say is uncomfortable and you know, it's just going to be no matter how positively you say it and how much preparation you do, you're anticipating it to just be tough, a tough conversation with not a lot of participation, then you can be strategic about when you say like, we're going to, I'm going to choose this trip on the way to the grocery store because the grocery store is only seven minutes away. It's really short. And by the time we get to the store, then we're in a public place. So we can't scream at each other once we get out of the car. And then You'd be surprised. Yeah, 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 it depends. In the parking lot, maybe not in the store. But um, 
it, it can, it can just help. It can help to be like, okay, I know that this is really hard, but it's not going to go on forever. And it's going to, yeah, yeah. you know, and so there's nothing to say, like, this is part of our job as parents and you got to do the hard stuff sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with voicing our opinion. Be like, look, I don't know. I don't know if you're having sex or not. I don't know if you're close to having sex or not. I just want you to understand how I feel about the prospect of you having sex right now. I'm feeling, we keep, we stick to our I statements again, right? Because what this conversation really is about is the way that we're feeling about it, knowing that ultimately we're not in control of this decision. Like I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I'm feeling really uh, insecure about this. I'm very worried for your safety because of these and you highlight your risks. Like you're not actually of age to consent to sex in this state. I'm, I'm really worried that, you know, when we were talking before and all the things that you told me about the kind of person you do want to eventually have sex with, I, I'm not convinced that your current partner is that is close enough to that person for you to be happy about this forever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried that you really haven't had any time alone with your doctor that I'm aware of to have spoken about whatever contraception method that you've thought through and chosen. Like, so I'm feeling I'm feeling really not great about this. And I just wanted you to understand that. That doesn't mean that I don't love you. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to be here for you no matter whatever happens in your life. I will always be here for you. I just felt like I needed to tell you about this. So you, you understood where I was at and, um, you know, you had the chance to take that into account when you're making whatever decisions that you're going to make at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be that simple. Yeah. Yeah. A few things that I want to make sure I get to that I were really like so many people had these questions. First of all, no matter what age we're talking about, or maybe it does have to do with age, uh, how much should it be mom talking to the girl, dad talking to the boy? Um, you know, does it, how much does it matter if there's one parent who just happens to be more comfortable with it? So they're the one doing most of the talking. The other one really doesn't do much. Mm-hmm. How, you know, because a lot of what I heard is, and I think this is true, a lot of what I heard is, well, I'm really comfortable talking about it with my kids, but my significant other isn't. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, so I just do it. Mm-hmm. But so any of that that you can, you know. I would say that for the less comfortable parent, it's still, if they're comfortable enough to witness the conversation, that's still really supportive and important. So they so should even, be, it's okay to have two parents there at the same time. It's not oh, yes. overwhelming. No, okay. no. So gender identity and sex assigned at birth, none of this has any impact on who, you know, who is uh, emotionally equipped to deliver this kind of um education to the children or have these kind of conversations in a shame-free way like that has nothing to do with it we're, we're, it has nothing to do with whatever's between our legs or however we identify about who can imp- participate in these conversations in the way that we that we're talking about not at all um, and if a if a partner is just not comfortable talking as much i still think if that partner is comfortable being in the room and witnessing the conversation and just being a supportive presence by being there or a witness, that's still really a good way to show support. That's still a good way to show support. And so um, if the if the less comfortable parent can do that, I think that that's to be commended. There's nothing uh, intrinsically wrong, you know, one parent being more comfortable than the other. We all have different ways of communicating. And just by the less comfortable parent being in the room, that doesn't, that shows that they're still willing to support 
conversation that's going on. And they might find that by witnessing those conversations over time, they grow more comfortable themselves. So it's good for everybody. And um, remember, we also have, if there's only, if it's, we're talking about a single parent household or whatever, or if um, for whatever reason, there is some kind of a family trauma or emotional trauma, there's, there's kind of a rough patch going on where um, the young people in the family just don't feel comfortable speaking to the parent that they're accustomed to speaking with, then that's when we rely on that safety net that I was talking about from the beginning. That's where we rely on the other supportive adults around that young person to fill in those gaps when, for whatever reason, we're just not able to do that. So even if, um, like, we attempt a conversation, it just doesn't go well for whatever reason, uh, there isn't that doesn't stop you from saying like, look, I don't get the sense that you want to talk to me about this. Like, that's just how it feels to me. And so that's totally fine. Respect that for you. But I want to make sure that you know that there are other people who you can talk to about this, who care about you just as much as I do. And, you know, you could bring up auntie, you could bring up grandma and grandpa, you could bring up a social worker at school, you could bring up family therapist you saw a year ago, and maybe you need to call again, you know, whatever it is. And you say, like, I'm not your only person. There's lots of people here who care about you. And I'm, I will support you connecting with them if I'm not the person you need right now. That's also really helpful. And um, did, I, did I cover your question? Yeah, no, that's sure. great. Because okay. I, I think that was a big thing is, you know, you always hear about dad's going to talk to the boy, mom's going to talk to the girl. And, and, and in some ways, I, I, I do think in our households, you know, I don't know, my husband's going to be the one to talk to my daughter. I just don't think that that's, but I guess it all depends on the dynamic of the household and yeah. if they're getting the information. Um, I can say just a, and again, this is just a polite suggestion. Yeah, please. I think it would be a really amazing experience for both your husband and your daughter to like learn about periods or whatever it is together. Right. You no, know, and and so that's what I'm saying. Like, as, as I feel like there's so much pressure on us as parents these days to um, to show competency. You know, to show competency in every area. Like that we that we've got all of, we've got all this under control to show competency. And I think that um, there's so much pressure on us to do that. That I mean, I certainly feel this as a parent myself, like it makes me feel um, nervous and anxious and scared to when I feel vulnerable, like I don't have all the answers or I don't have the tools to solve whatever problem I'm dealing with as a family, you know, as a person in a family. And I, and I, I reject that completely. And so it's something that I'm still working on as a process, but intellectually I reject it. And I don't think, you know, there's, there's any benefit in having to fake competency when we don't actually have it. And there's nothing to say that um, we're supposed to be experts in every area. And so um, my, my children have asked me questions about sperm production that even with all of my work and knowledge and, and, and everything, I didn't automatically know. And so that modeling process, I had to, I had to do that with my own children to be like, you know what, I don't know exactly how that works in the testicles. And right. so um, I do want to know, just like you, that is such a good question. Let's go figure this out together. And that's a really wonderful experience. That's a modeling experience that um, isn't dictated by anyone's gender identity or sign sex at birth, you know? So we, we can just do that together. And so I, I do this a little, you know, in my own um, 
work day to day. I, I, I'm a big, um, I'm not a big fan of separating children by gender for any type of sex education or social emotional learning, because we have a lot more in common than we have in difference. And the differences that we do have, which are not strictly along gender identity lines, are just opportunities to learn from each other. So um, that's true in the classroom. That's true in the family as well. But of course, taking into account various comfort levels and various trajectories of experience, you know, we all bring our own baggage into these conversations. I would just say that um, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for, you know, um, mom to do most of the talking to the girls or it's, it's not it's not wrong. I would just say that um, anytime we notice feeling uncomfortable as parents, I, I view that sign of discomfort as an invitation to grow. And so it's up to us whether or not we want to um, RSVP to that or not. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate I it. Like I, have, I hope you'll come back on because I still feel like I have so many questions. Oh, um, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, that would be amazing. We can make this like a part one. Um, I will put your links and everything all over our social media and on our website. But do you want to just quickly tell people where they can find you? Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. So my podcast, um, up until about up until two weeks ago, my podcast, I had a Patreon to support it, you know, because I had to cover my web hosting costs and everything else. So up until about two weeks ago, you could listen to the 10 most recent episodes for free, everything else you had to pay for. Um, I made the decision to change the model. And so all of the episodes I've made, which are 38 episodes now, I believe, are available for free. So everybody can listen to those. You can find that anywhere you find your podcasts, on iTunes, um, on SoundCloud, Spotify, et cetera, Google Play. Um, you can ask your smart speaker to play it and it'll find it, Six Minute Sex Ed. And you can also find it at my website, which is tandintimacy.com. So you can find me there and all of the websites. Yay, and intimacy. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, T and intimacy. You can find all the episodes there. And then if you want to follow the podcast on Instagram, I'm at Six Minute Sex Ed, which is a really great little community that we have going on Instagram. And then I do have a Minute Ed handle at Twitter, but um, you can find my personal Twitter which people usually find fairly entertaining at sex pause parenting. And you'll see that you're at the right place when you see Mrs. White from clue, uh, from the 1980s version of Clue, which is still my favorite movie. All right. (laughs) And I love Mrs. White from that film. So if you see Mrs. White on Twitter, then you know, you've got me and you've got the right place. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. I love your podcast as well. So I was thrilled to be here. Uh, thank you so much. Well, we'll de- we're definitely going to have you back on. So this was just part that's one. Perfect. And I need Adam here too, because he needs, yes. I mean, he's going to hear it because he's going to edit this. So that's mm-hmm. good because it's now he, he has no choice. He has to listen. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love him to actually be here doing the, you know, mm-hmm. taking part in the conversation. I would love to talk to him. So yeah, right, definitely awesome. do it next time. All right. Well, thank you, Kim. It's my pleasure. Bye.